Hey guys, welcome to Required Reading. This is a little bit different of an episode. Back in the day, I had a podcast called Doomed to Repeat, which was a history podcast heavily edited and produced along with uh, an advisor of mine and co-host, Dr. Alex Cumming. Um, now and again, Alex tries to revive the podcast, but at the moment, it's mostly defunct. But check out their blog, Tropics of Meta, and listen to the other episodes. I only produced and I'm a part of the first six or so, uh, but it's a good show, and I recommend it. In this particular episode, Alex and I are interviewing Kevin Cruz. Uh, you might not know the name, um, but he is a Harvard historian who wrote the book White Flight, which I use in class every time I teach uh, the 1950s and segregation. It's about Atlanta. But further, uh, you might know him from his very active Twitter feed um, and his fights <laughs> with a lot of online commentators who are increasingly ignorant of actual history. So enjoy, and thanks for listening. This is Doomed to Repeat. This is new to us, so we're going to try to ease into this one slowly and explain what we're doing. Um, but this is a semi-regular um, history podcast, and we're here to talk about um, the kind of ins and outs of history um, and how it still affects us today. Not that history was something that happened, but that history is something that is still happening, and that the things that we talked about in school are things that we um, still can relate to and that are still affecting us. So, I'm here with my co-host. Uh, I'm Dr. Alex Cummings. I'm a associate professor of history at Georgia State University, author of Democracy of Sound, a book about uh, jazz and, and the Grateful Dead and music piracy and bootlegging and copyright law and the post-industrial society, and a co-editor of the blog Tropics of Meta. Yeah, and I'm, I'm Nick Hoffman, his young Padawan learner. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Georgia State University. I'm the I guess the head of Dude Letter Podcasting, and I am the the I guess the radio voice who kept poking him to say we should do a podcast, we should do a podcast. The idea is not that people don't want to learn. Um, I think history has the stereotype of either being you know well it was in the past, who cares, or boring. I mean you know, <laughs> and I mean like part of it is that in high schools oftentimes the history teacher is like uh, the the coach that needed a class to teach. He doesn't really know the subject or she doesn't really know the subject. And it's not something that they care about. And so to have someone who's passionate and interested, which is what makes people interested in the subject. You know, I really like biology because my ninth grade biology teacher was a good teacher. Right. Even if I got a C in his class, I'm sorry, Mr. Lorries. But that was the idea that someone can inspire you. And, you know, I, you know, teaching in a one one oh one lecture hall, you know, I get to talk about the fun stories, but so much of the history podcasts are either, you know, public broadcast, kind of mundane, often well done, but not necessarily interesting, and or on the other end of the spectrum, almost conspiracy minded. You know, something like last podcast in the left where the answer is always but aliens, which is for entertainment purposes, but not necessarily quality work. So I wanted to put together a history narrative 
that could be compelling, interesting, but we saw on the streets every day. Yeah, I can I can relate with that, you know, having been a high school teacher and, you know, I had some fantastic high school teachers, my own my own 10th grade biology teacher, Mrs. Bray, fantastic, and a lot of my history teachers as well. But, you know, when I was teaching, we were under the burden of standardized testing, and I felt like I was just frog marching these poor kids uh, through every, you know, chapter of the textbook just to try to cover the material. And, you know, uh, maybe I, maybe I wasn't that great of a teacher, but, um, it was, it, it did not lend itself to an engaging, fun, interesting, creative kind of experience, maybe because of the pressure of the testing. I don't know. Um, so yeah, in the college arena, there's a lot more room and give and take for, um, looking at things from a different angle, but you know, that happens in a college classroom. So, um, this is something that happens maybe in your earbud, uh, at the gym, you know, on the elliptical. And that's how I feel like I've learned a lot of stuff from listening to all kinds of great podcasts, like 99% invisible or radio lab or whatever the case may be. So, um, yeah, we, we hope that, um, you know, the scholars we talk to on here, the journalists, the writers, the artists, the experts, uh, the scientists, you know, the kind of people we're going to interview to learn about their point of view, their their take on the important issues um, that are still with us today, but have been around for a while. So the thematic thing we're going to talk about today is desegregation, integration, segregation as a problem, etc. <laughs> segregation in a way that, on one hand, gives good examples, frankly, more than we thought. We looked it up. But, on the other hand, makes it seem like a thing that ended. It's over. It's done. It's solved. Um, which, frankly, is not the case. It's a much more complicated story. A memo from the owner of the Ace Hardware on 5th and Shea Street. They will no longer tolerate baristas lining up for day jobs in their parking lot. Every morning at dawn, dozens of baristas with newsboy caps, waxed mustaches, and knit ties tucked into button sweater vests continue to crowd the parking lot, foreheads beaded with desperation and hoping to be picked up to operate unlicensed espresso machines. This is scaring away the legitimate Ace Hardware customers, and the baristas will be required to return to their caves just on the outskirts of town, near the sand wastes, in the barista district. Oh, some great news to all of you out there who adopted kittens from Koshek. You know, anybody who lives in a major metropolitan area is familiar, and especially if you have kids, uh, even if you don't have kids, this affects your property values and, and the cost of a home you might buy. Um, what's the school system? Where do they go to school? Is there a charter school? Um, 
what is the is that a good school or a bad school and what do those euphemisms about a good school or a bad school mean because sometimes they are euphemisms um that is a problem that faces uh, most families and even like i mentioned people who maybe even don't have kids but are affected by these larger macro uh circumstances so here we find ourselves uh, decades and decades after Brown versus the Board of Education. And as historian Kevin Cruz uh, points out later in the show, um, he of Princeton University, um, many American cities are more segregated today than they were back in 1954 uh, when we first set about trying to undo um, you know, legally mandated and, uh, and, and otherwise informal types of segregation in housing and schools and other arenas. Um, so why is that the case? What kind of policies worked in the past? Uh, we're going to talk to Ansley Erickson, a historian at Columbia University, who's the author of a great new book called Making the uh, Unequal Metropolis, um, who looked at Nashville, which is supposedly one of the school systems, uh, one of the urban public school systems that actually kind of got desegregation kind of right. And, you know, uh, Dr. Erickson is going to tell us a little bit about some of the problems with that narrative. Um, and we have to try to figure out, well, are there policies that could create a more equitable uh, city for all families and all students and all schools? Um, I'm not convinced that there are, but we'll find out. Um, so stay tuned. It's your coming. Ring out the church everyone this is where ads would be if we had ads but we don't so um do us a favor follow us on facebook um we are at doom to repeat you can find us there and uh let us know what you think because we're trying to improve if you have a subject you want us to touch on or any interviewees you want to hear from let us know and we'll reach out thanks My name is uh, Alex Cummings. I'm here. Um, I'm a, an assistant professor, at, uh, actually an associate professor at Georgia State University. Um, and I'm talking with Ansley Erickson, who is an assistant professor of education and history at uh, Teachers College at Columbia University. Uh, she's the author of many uh, wonderful things, but uh, particularly Making the Unequal Metropolis, uh, School Desegregation and Its Limits, uh, which is a wonderful new book from University of Chicago Press uh, about the experience of school desegregation in Nashville. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm happy to be here. 
So Nashville's much closer to Charlotte than it is Detroit, right. not just geographically, but on the Nashville, like Charlotte, is a metropolitan um, southern city where the school district um, operates across the entire county, and um, and so with the combination of that metropolitan structure and a court order for busing, which Nashville had and which Charlotte also had. Um, Nashville's on that same list of top 10 or 15 most statistically desegregated school systems in the country. Um, from 1971 in Nashville's case through 1998, which is when the court order for desegregation ends there. Um, so in that respect, it's like Charlotte. It's different from Charlotte, though, in that Charlotte and Raleigh more so and Louisville even more so kept a conversation about desegregation going um, after the end of the court order. Mm -hmm. And Nashville moved quite quickly to resegregation and to a relatively minimal local attention to the problem of, of segregation in its schools after the after 1998. I don't know. The, you talk a lot about the experience of schooling. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that's really important. Um, what, why, why do we look at something and say, well, there's 60-40 or 70-30, um, you know, representation of races. There's a racial balance in schools statistically, but then the actual experience of schooling is not good for um, students, especially maybe African American students. Um, can you talk about that? Like, why do you why do you really focus on that distinction? Well, in part, it's because of this this contradiction, right? So Nashville, on the statistical measures, looks very successful, um, and yet on other statistical measures, um, on on test score results, um, for example, you see a persistent gap in outcomes for Black students. So one of the things that's very quickly clear is that. Um, bringing kids into the same school together didn't of itself produce um, equality. Now, it did in Nashville. The numbers are not, the, the data that's available isn't as great as it is for some other places, but the national pattern seems to be clear that there is, a, there is an increase in measurable test measured academic achievement for black students over the period of most intensive desegregation. So that matters. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's that's one way in which there seem to be significant positive consequences of desegregation. But the reason I think we should distinguish between statistical desegregation in general um, and and assertions about broad equality of experience or of outcomes is that there's a lot that happens that is not captured by 60% of the kids are white and 40% of the kids are black. One example of that is that that's a number that operates at the school level, typically. And you could achieve that school level figure with still pretty significant um, and uh, often race-based tracking inside the school. So right? within the classroom, there might yeah. be a significant amount of segregation, but the school might appear to be racially balanced, but the yeah. classroom might not be, right? Why, why do you think there's this range? Why, like between places that like just don't even try to do desegregation and places yeah. that do try to do it but maybe don't do it that well? But. And and that engagement um, created a space in which Charlotte residents 
also got to work out some basic ideas about fairness in the process of desegregation. And there was a kind of public conversation about that problem. Like, we need to desegregate, but we want to figure out how to do it more fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, because Nashville's federal judge um, quickly recused himself from the case, and the case then moved to another judge who had much less of a history with it and also, who also then was um, pretty soon became ill and wasn't an active supervisor of it. The, the crucial first seven or eight years of desegregation in Nashville in some ways happened without real um, supervision from the federal bench. Even though it happened under federal order, it didn't happen with very much um, supervision. And maybe even more importantly than the lack of supervision is just the lack of pressure to take up this question of fairness. As you point out in your book, like resegregation follows pretty quickly after you stop forcing this um, kind of program. So I don't know. I mean, why, why, why? Why, why do we come to this political moment where we just have just decided we don't – it seems like we don't care. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then, again, the, I know Nashville much better than I know Charlotte. Um, but in the Nashville case, without previous deep investment in the effort, uh, the – Local leadership in the 90s shifts. There are folks who, rather than having been homegrown, long-term local politicians, there's yeah. a sort of new cadre of um, business leaders who become politicians in the 90s, and they get a lot of traction out of assertions about um, what the city needs to become a boomtown mm-hmm. and how they want to grow more like Atlanta or grow more like Charlotte, uh, and that their surveys tell them that – uh, the limitations of the local school system, including people's complaints about busing, are an impediment to that. It's a very ahistorical idea. It's that people are just segregated, and we don't have to ask questions about the policy orientations of those patterns. Instead, we can effectively sort of suggest that they come out of exclusively individual or exclusively private action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so without a better understanding of the both the the range and the creativity in some cases and the breadth of policy making that encouraged segregation um, it's hard for people standing in the 1990s to say well the civil rights act was nearly 40 years ago right well jim crow seems to me to be formally over what is how does this connect to me how is it that I am positioned in relationship to segregation? If segregation is de facto, if it doesn't really have identifiable causes, I don't see why I would invest in it. And, it emerges out of people's yeah. individual policy, I mean, individual preferences, right? It's just yep. it's just something that organically emerges. And I mean, that's at least the way we talk about it, I think. Yeah, or if, if it used to have policy origins – those origins have the, – the, the consequences of those earlier decisions have passed. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what's really powerful about the recent wave of attention sociologically as well as historically to, um, to wealth inequality, for example, is that it has this generational aspect. It's able to say right. – it's able to help people better understand that you know when your grandfather accumulated equity through – a government subsidized mortgage, and you then were able, and then your parents were able to um, borrow on that equity to pay for college, right. and then then they let you 
to have a small down payment, that there is a there is a set of um, opportunities that are facilitated generations later by some of by for, for the beneficiaries of those policies, and we can also then identify. Um, generational impact for the people who are cut out of those benefits. The people whose, whose grandfather wasn't able to get uh, uh, an FHA loan or build equity or pass on money to their kids to go to college. That was Ansley Erickson, assistant professor of education and history at Columbia University. She was being interviewed by my co-host Alex Cummings. You want brothers on the wall? Love. Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. What I tell you about the noise? What I tell you about them pictures? You call some brother talk to him. You the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. The first time you turn your back, boom. Right here, man, in the back. Y'all take a chill. You like to sign a petition to boycott Tao's famous pizzeria? Hear me, what you ought to do is boycott that no good barber that messed up your head. And that's the double truth. Rude. Fight the power. Fight the power. You know, deep down inside, I think I wish you were black. <laughs> Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block, in my neighborhood, on my side of the street? I can't even hear myself think. Good people, please. Please don't stop this. Stop it now. We're going to do something. We're going to regret it. Doctor, come on, what, what? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. My name is Kevin Cruz. I'm a professor of history at Princeton University. Kevin Cruz is the author of many books, most recently of One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, uh, which came out this past year. Um, but I know him best for his book, White Flight, which was assigned to me in at least three classes as a grad student, which makes it the most important book ever written. Um, it's on Atlanta and its process with desegregation and uh, suburbanization. And using his own words, of course, it's also the reason why and where from modern conservatism comes from. So Atlanta always prided itself as the city too busy to hate. And this is a, a slogan that gets concocted fairly early on in the city's history um, but, but speaks to a longstanding trend and uh, how the city thought of itself. And basically moderate white leaders like Mayor Bill Hartsfield and later Mayor Alan I. Uh, Moderate white leaders, uh, Mayor uh, Bill Hartsfield and uh, Ivan Allen after him, uh, thought of themselves as uh, leading a system that wedded together economic progress with racial progressivism. Essentially, good race relations, good race relations made for good business. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, they insisted that Atlanta was a forward-looking city, and part of looking forward was that the races could live and thrive together. So it was a city that long thought of itself as uh, uh, leading the way in race relations. And in a number of ways, uh, this was true. You had uh, early moments in which African Americans uh, are, are a fairly significant voting block uh, in, in city elections and then later on at the state level. 
you have certain gains in uh, residential desegregation and the integration of uh, the police force in the 40s, uh, and generally a voice for African-American community in the larger political process, uh, something that made them uh, quite unlike other towns throughout the South. And so Atlanta prided itself, and with, with some good reason, on leading the way with a, a moderate, even progressive view on civil rights. Desegregation in Atlanta really proceeds in three main stages. And what's interesting, I think, is that the three stages interact with the white community in different segments. So the first stage is the residential desegregation, which largely impacts the white working class. Uh, they are the ones who live in neighborhoods that were historically closest to the black part of town, uh, and they are the ones into which uh, the black middle class first starts to move. So neighborhoods like uh, Mosley Park is a key one I talk about in the book, but then largely throughout the West End. Uh, and then also into places like, like Kirkwood and, and Adamsville. Uh, it, it swiftly moves across uh, the middle part of the city. But it does so in a way, again, that, that impacts white working class neighborhoods. And the uh, again, the ruling coalition is one that is composed of really um, middle class and upper class whites who don't live in these neighborhoods. And a black middle class, which in many ways is uh, involved in this desegregation, either as customers who are looking for new homes, or in some cases, there's the real estate agents who are uh, enabling the moves. So they're all very much in favor of this. Uh, the people who are on the outs in this early stage uh, are really the white working class uh, who see themselves as victims. Uh, they're not, if you actually look at the numbers, uh, this is one of the great myths of uh, residential desegregation, that black buyers move into a neighborhood and property values plummet. Uh, as I found in uh, my book, it's actually the exact opposite. Uh, and it makes sense if you think about it. Uh, there was such a tight market for available homes that could be bought by members of the black middle class in Atlanta. And here we're talking everything from college professors and doctors to businessmen and lawyers. There was such a tight market on the homes they could buy, but they paid a premium. So white working class homes that would have gone for, uh, you know, the same value any other white working class home across the region went for, went for twice as much sometimes uh, because – there was a, a market that was willing to pay an incredible premium for them. So these homeowners who get bought out, they do so not because they're, uh, as other white call them, uh, race traders or anything. Uh, they're not interested in racial progressivism. They're going to make a killing off selling their home here, and so they do so. Uh, and once one moves and the, the line moves on uh, to the next house that they see what their neighbor sold for, they get out too. And so you have a, a process of residential transition it's called, uh, that happens with incredible speed. And it happens because everyone involved immediately is benefiting. I'm curious, just based on <clears throat> some of the work that I've been doing, uh, looking at some communities in Raleigh and Durham and, and other um, North Carolina cities, um, where there was a professional white middle class that tried to um, – accommodate um, people moving in who didn't, you know, just sell and cash out and move somewhere else where neighborhoods weren't flipped, where blockbusting didn't quite work the way that we uh, customarily understand it. Um, are there examples in Atlanta of white communities that uh, didn't just sort of um, say uh, the blacks are moving in, um, let's sell and go to Marietta? Yeah, yeah, there are a couple. Um, uh they're few and far between. Uh, normally what you have, uh, as I talk about in the, in the book, is a process of either 
uh, again, it's fight or flight. It's a cliche, but it's, mm-hmm. it's true. And so you have these neighborhoods that switch, sometimes hundreds of houses at a time, or you have these moments of opposition. Uh, again, the, the anecdote I lead the book off with, the, the famous Peyton Wall, where they literally right. have a barrier across Peyton Road. There is, however, in southwest Atlanta, I don't talk about it in the book, but there's a great story in southwest Atlanta of a group called, I want to say, Southwest Atlanta for Progress. The, the acronym stands for SWAP. But it's a fascinating group uh, because it brings together white leaders and black leaders who essentially do what you describe in North Carolina. They, they seek to hold the line and maintain some sort of uh, racial uh, peace here, some sort of integration. And what's really fascinating is that the main black leader is, uh, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but was a, a local kind of black power advocate. The main white leader is a former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, Calvin Craig, who briefly in the late 60s has a change of heart decides he's going to support integration and hold the line. He changes back to being a a Klansman later on, but has this moment in the late 60s where he's willing to hold the line. The problem with these efforts to achieve racial balance is that blacks and whites understand it in very different terms. Uh, African Americans typically, if you look at polls, think of a racially balanced neighborhood as one that is half white, half black. Whites, however, tend to think of a racially balanced neighborhood as one that is at least two-thirds white and one-third black. And so with these different definitions, uh, it's hard to find any kind of uh, a true balance. And so invariably, you reach this tipping point where before you achieve anything like an even half black, half white balance, whites start to feel panic. And again, uh, uh, the massive process of white flight begins. Can we um, talk about the idea of a tipping point? Because the cities that became predominantly or overwhelmingly African-American in their populations, um, you know, you think of Newark, Detroit, Atlanta are the ones that had the greatest disinvestment in uh, their schools, inner city institutions. And then the cities that have been looked at as being like kind of successful in terms of making desegregation work. Um, I'm thinking here of places like Charlotte and Raleigh that uh, Matt Lassiter has talked about in his uh, really excellent work. Um, they maintained a white majority and, you know, I, you know, Durham might be a little different because it did become a majority black city and um, all the assumptions about urban pathology and bad schools and, you know, concentrated poverty um, that come along with that, um, you know, affected Durham, whereas Raleigh, Charlotte, and um, perhaps arguably Nashville uh, have been looked at as places where by some act of goodwill or moderation or whatever, um, white communities and black communities came together to at least try to get uh, desegregation, uh, especially of the schools, somewhat right. I'm just wondering what thoughts you have about why certain cities uh, either were more successful or at least had more of a reputation for being successful, uh, whereas you know Atlanta schools became um, – pretty overwhelmingly, uh, at least the Atlanta public school system, uh, pretty overwhelmingly black and poor? It, it comes down to a very important but incredibly boring answer, uh, and I would put it all on state annexation rules. So, so those places you name, which always get thrown out, Nashville, Charlotte, uh, uh, sometimes Raleigh-Durham, uh, also in Florida, you've got some towns. Those are the three states where you have automatic annexation rules. So as the city gets big enough, it immediately gobbles up those surrounding suburbs. So you can't flee from the central city out to the suburbs if you're looking to escape desegregation because it's going to catch up with you as soon as your suburb gets big enough. 
So people stay put, they make their peace with it. Flight is not an option. Uh, so they can either fight or they can decide they're actually going to get along and, and, and do something uh, uh, to achieve a sense of peace in their lives. And if they're thinking about their kids in, in public schools, that becomes a priority. And so I don't think it's that uh, as much as I love the people of North Carolina, as much as I am a Nashvilleian, it's not that the people there are any better than the people elsewhere. It's that the political rules are set up a, in a way in which they simply had no option to get out. And so in Atlanta, you have massive white flight because you can skip across the city limits, uh, cross the Chattahoochee River, and you're in an entirely different community that is effectively walled off. It's a process I talk about in the book of uh, what I call suburban secession, uh, that they're able to withdraw. Uh, and again, it's not just Atlanta does this. Uh, you look at the famous uh, Supreme Court cases on, on school desegregation and busing, you can see the contrast quite sharply. Again, Charlotte, Mecklenburg, the, the city in the Swan case in 1971, it was a single unitary school district. Swan, Charlotte, Mecklenburg, uh, Charlotte, Mecklenburg schools. Uh, the Charlotte, Mecklenburg County school system is a city county system, one giant system, but a unitary system. So they bus all the people. Within that system, that's fine. The court allows that. You go to Detroit, you've got the Detroit city schools, and then about 55 counties uh, and school districts around it, and those are walled off and separate. So you can flee the city of Detroit. You can't flee the city of Charlotte. And so people stay and they make it work. Well, and it reminds me a little bit of the build-up to the Olympic Games as well. I mean, around Georgia Tech especially, where, you know, um, certain areas were cleared out completely and replaced with these, well, I mean, the Olympic Village, which became part of Georgia Tech. Urban renewal is a classic example, but, but interstate highways, uh, the Olympic Park, all of these things, the new, when the new stadium goes in, uh, what are cleared out are usually the worst parts of town. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and who determines what's the worst part of town is usually uh, uh, city managers who are, if for most of the story, are middle-class and upper-class whites. Uh, even later on, though, are perhaps African-American, but largely, again, middle-class, upper-class. These are not the neighborhoods they live in. Uh, and they're eager to see them removed and destroyed, and they use these uh, processes of renewal uh, to obliterate these neighborhoods. Uh, and um, in the Olympics, it's definitely true that large swaths of downtown, uh, especially poor neighborhoods, uh, were ripped up. Uh, even before that, uh, when the, uh, the Democratic National Convention comes to town in 1988, it's done so in uh, new arenas that had been uh, placed on top of old, poor neighborhoods that were simply obliterated. And little effort is made to rehouse or resettle uh, those communities. Sure, it was in the Omni, if I recall correctly. And if you, if you go to the edge of the road there, you can literally look down on the old train tracks, you know, something out of Batman looking down into Gotham. It's almost terrifying, right, actually. Right. Can I ask you a question? Because I think one of the things that we're really interested in is the implications of this history for policy as it exists now. And specifically to Nick's question about gentrification and the sort of ebb and flow of white uh, interest in cities like Atlanta, the the flight and now the return or uh, the urban frontier, as they like to call it. It's it's come a long way since what you saw in the 90s. I mean, it's just it's it's so much further advanced than it was. And I guess I'm curious because this uh, rediscovery of the city that we've begun to 
talk about um, that started in the late 90s, early 2000s, has also happened at the same time as a retreat from a lot of remedies that had been developed for desegregation. Uh, Charlotte, as I think you probably know, abandoned its busing scheme in the late 90s. A lot of people would say had been fairly successful up to that point. Raleigh recently, in the last few years, with the Republican Board of uh, Education, has abandoned a school assignment strategy that was based on socioeconomic uh, status, which had really created a pretty even relatively evenly distributed kind of school mixed population of, you know, classes and races. And in cities like Atlanta, there's the whole charter school movement, which allows urban gentrifiers, often white and middle class, to uh, come to a community and live there, but not be invested in the public schools because they're sending their child to the charter school. So um, I guess I'm just wondering what modest successes desegregation efforts might have achieved in the late 20th century seem like they're being rolled back now at the exact same time that there's a renewed interest among white families and white middle class families to live in cities. And do you have any take? I mean, I, I know you're a historian and not a, a policy wonk, strictly speaking, but what, what do you think about that process? And are you at all optimistic that there are you know ways that we could reduce the inequities that we find in urban public, public education? Well, that's a great question. Um, Again, I'm an historian, so my training is in hindsight. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's tough for me to offer policy solutions here. But, but I would say, if we look back over the story, what we see is a process in which desegregation, as I chronicle in Atlanta, uh, is largely coupled with an intense movement for the privatization of public spaces and services. Uh, and, and it's an important point uh, I make repeatedly in the book. Uh, it's not solely mine, but it's what I make in the book, uh, that desegregation and integration do not mean the same thing. Desegregation mm -hmm. is the, uh, the striking down of the legal structures, the legal systems that keep the races apart. Integration means that they actively, willingly live together, and you don't necessarily have integration coming with desegregation. They're not one of the same. And so this shift to uh, everything from private golf courses and private swimming pools to, I think, more importantly, uh, private schools uh, is one that takes place uh, in rapid speed across the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, but it's a change that radically alters cities like Atlanta. And so as whites move back into the city limits, again, they're, not, they're moving back into a desegregated public space, but they're not necessarily moving into integrated spaces. Uh, so their kids may still go to uh, private religious or parochial schools, their kids, which are largely segregated uh, effectively. Their kids may uh, play in, uh, you know, uh, private uh, country clubs or, 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 or swimming pools, things like that. And so they're not necessarily uh, mixing uh, with other people of different races or classes in these spaces. They, they live a largely um, self-segregated life. And, and that's the terms on which a lot of this in migration has been made. Now, what can policymakers do? Uh, it's largely up to what they can convince uh, the public is in their best good. If they can convince the public that truly integrated public schools are in the interest of the entire community, maybe they can make that work. Uh, but at the time, we're living in a reality in which uh, after the formal end of legalized segregation, most major American cities are more segregated now than they were back in the 40s or 50s. Uh, and it's because you've had uh, this 
um, self-segregation, even within these communities, into separate neighborhoods, but also then into the places in which they work, live, uh, play, and pray. Election time is coming. If I was president, I'd get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. The song What's Going On by Marvin Gaye from the album What's Going On is produced by Motown Universal Records. The clips from Welcome to Night Vale, episode 39, was produced by Commonplace Books. The clip from Blazing Saddles is distributed by Warner Brothers Pictures. The song from The Times They Are A-Changing by Bob Dylan is off the album The Times They Are A-Changing, produced by Columbia Records. The song Fight the Power by Public Enemy is on the album Fear of a Black Planet and is produced by Motown and The Bomb Squad. The trailer for Do the Right Thing is distributed by Universal Pictures. The music playing now is If I Was President by Wyclef John. Our theme music was written by Tender Pony. Alex Cummings is an associate professor of history at Georgia State University. His book, Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy, and the Remaking of American Copyright in the 20th Century, is available wherever books are sold. Follow his blog, The Tropics of Meta. Nick Hoffman is a lecturer at Kennesaw State University and a Ph.D. candidate at Georgia State University. He produced this episode for Dude Letter Podcasting. But I also love the comic book artist Jack Kirby as well. He was a big influence on me when I was a kid. I was really into like all the new gods and all that kind of stuff. Oh, sure. That's why I have the little dark side... Uh, like um oh the bubblehead guy yeah well what are they called pop or whatever yeah, yeah, those yeah. things yeah apparently those are that one's actually worth a lot because they didn't make many of them nixon watergate jimmy carter ronald reagan pat co we do all that today and then tomorrow, we're going to do Obama, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, this is such a, this is such a pedagogical, like, travesty. But...